This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. On one of my visits there to Israel, <clears throat> when I was in Yerushalayim, I was going into the Milona Merkaz to eat breakfast and to make a few telephone calls. Standing outside, this was about um, 8 o'clock, 8.15 in the morning, I see the Machi Schwab standing there. So I go over, give him Shalom, and uh, he asks me, could you do me a favor? I say, what does that entail? He says, somebody's picking him up in a few minutes regarding a new housing development near Yerushalayim, and he knows nothing about these things. Could I be his representative because he doesn't know what he is, etc., and he would like maybe possibly to move there? So I told him, let me go inside, let me rearrange some of my uh, appointments for the day, and I'll try to help him. And basically, I came back outside afterwards, and, uh, you know, you don't you don't say no to the Moscow Schwab, and that you don't have the time, whatever else it is. And um, a few minutes later, we were picked up by an American uh, person with an American station wagon, and we head out to an empty, vast, open area. Now it's known as Maladumim. At that time, it was just completely open, vast area. You only saw mountains and sand and nothing else. You didn't even see mountains, just flat sand area all over. Another few people arrived also, potential purchases, about this new from a project that this person was planning to put up there. This American fellow gave a short speech explaining the project from his point of view. Then they turned to the Matzke Schwab if he has any questions. So the Matzke Schwab says, Das ist mein Vorsteher, he's my representative, he'll ask the questions. I asked a few basic questions, and I also addressed how many sections will be in this development. And he said, 10. I asked, is this part that you're taking over here, considering to take, is this the beginning of the... 10, or in the middle, or on the end. So he says it'll, it'll basically be someplace in the middle. So I said, so that means really that this can't be closed off for Shabbos and Yontef. It would be the last one on the on this um, road, whatever else it is, and there's no going out after that, you close up the section of Shabbos and Yontef. Okay. Then I asked another question, and he said he'll try to find out if it can be changed to the end section or not. Then I asked, when would the public facilities be installed? Uh, meaning the shuls, the McCoys, the shopping um, stores, buses, Yerushalayim, schools, sidewalks, all of these things. When, when are they planning to install this? After the whole thing, because they usually build these things in sections. He said, at the beginning of the construction of the second phase, that's when it's going to be. So I said, if the project can be moved to the last one on the road, so that could be closed off on Shabbos and Yontif. Rev Schwab would want to have a unit on the second floor of the first building in the second section, provided that the schools, shopping, shuls, McVoys, buses, transportation, sidewalks are all uh, already installed and everything is in order with the transportation, etc., etc. Then he turned to the other people with that question, and everybody felt that this was basically the same concerns that they have, and they responded that they would do basically as the same thing as Rob Schwab would uh, want done, basically, in the beginning of the second section. 
came back to Yerushalayim, I asked Rav Matka Schwab if he feels I was right with taking that position. He says, yes, of course, even if it means that the project will not happen, because basically there's no first section, there's only a second section, it's not going to happen. But he says, you know, to go in when you have none of these things over there, he doesn't think it's the right thing to do. Then the Schwab asked me that the close you did of his that has a son in Yerushalayim, that straying a stickle from the Torah path, could I talk to the Bachan? I said, Rebbe I don't know how to do these things. He said, try. So I made one call to the Bach. I felt I did not succeed. But Schwab eventually let me know that he, that he, I thanked me very much and said the Bach basically is coming around and he thanked me very much and he holds it with Poshet for what I spoke to the Bach. He doesn't know what I told him, this and that. I also don't know what I told him that really made any difference to him, etc. I was a close you did a very close he did with somebody, Rebnata. Rebnata was involved in many, many different Tzorchit Sibur, Yechidim, everything under the, under the sun that you could name, basically. He worked very successful at a lot of Balichuva. He called me up one day with the following request. He says, as a teenage girl, first year Balichuva, doing extremely well, but she must go to a firm camp in the summer and have any job there. She needs that firm environment or she may regress. I told him not to, that's right up your alley to handle these things. On the other hand, I'm not good at those things at all. Lebnot says, in this case, I have a personal reason I can make the call. Yehuda, please try. So, it was a little bit hard to turn him down. We've been close for many, many years, and especially with such a type of request. I get from the name of the director, owner of the camp, and a phone. I place the call and I do my pitch. The camp director owner says, This sounds like the one Rebnata spoke to me about the other day. I'm thinking now to myself, I know why Rebnata has a personal reason why he can't make the call. The director owner says very firmly, The answer is, just like I told Rebnata, is a resounding no. I was taken back, not ready for such a response, because I happen to know uh, this owner director personally. So I say, um, you wouldn't want me to talk to the real owner of the camp about this. He says, I am the director and the owner of the camp. I responded, you're only a hired director. Hashem is the de facto owner. I'll have to relay it to his, all to him. Very sorry, because we're talking about Abolish Chuba, that we have to do something for her. He says, okay, if that's the case, if that's what you're telling me, She'll be an assistant counselor in the youngest bunk. I said, you got a deal. He tells me, but you didn't talk to the girl yet about this job. How could you say that uh, that she's going to accept it? I said, she isn't either a balabas and a harnashama. She must accept it. And everything worked out. After the summer, the acting director owner called him up and says, next year, you could send me head of these kind of girls you can't imagine what she has done for the camp and the campers and the staff. A firm fellow contacts me. He's uh, owned a Cholish Roll Pizza 
company, manufacturer, and he's interested in selling his frozen cholesterol pizzas in the ShopRite stores in, in New Jersey. A number of the ShopRite stores in New Jersey are owned by the Seika brothers, who are of Arab origin. The general manager of all the ShopRite stores that's under their ownership is somebody, Mr. Carl Montanaro, of Italian origin. And he has been with the company for many, many years. This uh, Carl Montanaro also set up that before Pesach, because it's owned by Goyim, he stocks up on a lot of Chometzika um, items, which basically the Thruma Oilam is going to buy, so they don't have a problem of Chometzika or Pesach. You know, he was very much attuned to exactly what the Thruma Oilam needs, and he tried to accommodate them very much. They did have um, so-called a mashgiach for all of their stores, you know, if they have any questions of kashras, uh, somebody, uh, Moshe. This pizza manufacturer was not able to as much as get an appointment with the ShopRite manager of the frozen product department. He called me to see if I know anyone in ShopRite that could get him into the door to be able to sell his pizzas. I called the main mashgiach of ShopRite, Rabbi Moshe, and got a name and phone number of the manager of the frozen department, who happens to have learned in the Frum Yeshiva, now is completely fried. <clears throat> and this Moshe tells me there's also two secretaries working in the same office that originally were Beit Yaakov girls, and now they're fried. Okay, I initiated a call to them regarding an appointment for the pizza owner that wants to meet him. The manager asked where they're coming from. I said they're coming from Borough Park, Brooklyn. And the shepherd officers are located in Freehold, New Jersey, which is not too far from Lakewood. He said, okay, tell them to meet me over here in the office on Friday, 12 p.m. <clears throat> which was, would have been a little bit shocking, because they know they're coming from, uh, that they're from a people that come from Borough Park. But, you know, I realized exactly what his background is, where he's coming from, he wants that, I'm not going to argue. I called the pizza manufacturer to be there at 11.45 with his wife. He said, you know, Friday out of Shabbos? I said, yes, it's, it happens to be at before Chatzos. And if we get the appointment, you know, we have to go along with it. And that's it. He was there with his wife by the time I arrived at exactly 12 p.m. I arrived with a fresh piping hot potato cooker with me. When I opened the box in the hallway... The two secretaries that were basically Shano Pirishniks, uh, they said, Rabbi uh, Moshe, do I smell potato kugel? He says, yes. He says, could I have a piece or two? Okay, I brought plates, forks, napkins, etc. And I gave everyone fresh potato kugel, including Sal, who was the manager of the frozen food department. And I personally made this kugel. It was a hit. After some 10, 15 minutes, the manager says, look, you're in with your pizza, you have to get back home for Shabbos. All the little details will work out at another time, but you get home now for Shabbos and you're in. The following Monday, this Carl Montanaro, the, the Italian manager, the general manager, told Sal, isn't Rabbi uh, Yaffe uh, very, very tough to deal with? He says, uh, yes, he is tough to deal with. Uh, he says, but all for a piece of potato kugel? So Sal told him, anyone that this rabbi brings to me is in. He's tough, but he's as straight as an arrow. He has no agendas. There's nothing ever under the table. You know exactly where you're standing with him. 
That's the kind of people I like to deal with. And basically, I believe everything worked out fine. About a year later, on a Thursday afternoon, this Sal was in his office, and he had a massive heart attack in the office. The Levi was set for the following day, Friday, at 12 p.m., just about a year after this meeting. Carl Montanaro was in the limousine with the Sakers, and he exclaimed, Ah, what Sal wouldn't do now for another piece of the rabbi's potato kugel. The reason for the kugel was, I knew they all grew up on Erev Shabbos potato kugel. It'll bring back those memories from them. It's basically, you know, it's, they all knew that that potato kugel, that's what we always had, and that's what I knew it's going to have to break him, and Baruch Hashem it did. One day I got a call from this Shabnata. <coughs> it's uh, time for us to go to New York now. Very important. I said, could you tell me? He said, no, just, I'll pick you up in a few minutes and come into the car. Okay. We're heading to New York, and he's calling on a telephone to uh, somebody that's um, uh, ahead of a, of a funeral parlor from a person. And he asked him, I want to know how to get to the Yaakov Yosef's caver. The doctor says, I don't know. I know it's this and this area in Queens where it is, but I don't know the exact location. Call this other fellow. Call the other fellow. He says, when I drive down there, I know how to find it, but I can't tell you exactly how to go there. But get off this and this exit, Cypress Avenue in Queens, and it's one of those cemeteries. There's a lot of cemeteries over there. It's one of those cemeteries. Hopefully you could find it. And this was on a Sunday. So, we go there, we see, okay, this is the road where the cemeteries are on Cypress Avenue, and we're going to try to find it. The gates are closed already because it's Sunday, they keep, um, most of these cemeteries are closed, and um, I park my car uh, close to the fence, we climb up on the roof of the car, jump over the fence, get inside, didn't make a husband of how we're going to get out, you know, glad again, at least we had the roof of the car to jump in, we'll figure it out. And we're going looking through, we figured, you know, and the people definitely go over there, so it must be something, a nicer cave or something, or there's something around it, we'll be able to see it. And we're going, we're going through thorn bushes and, and everything, all different kind of growth, and suddenly we realize we're running in a second cemetery, because you see how the Kavarim are set up, that basically it's not the same cemetery as the first one. And we keep climbing and going, and we're going like this, Mr. I'd say a good two hours uh, or more. And then we're in another cemetery. I'm a little bit ahead of this hypnosis. And I take a look up to the to my left. I see a red truck sitting in the driveway. And being a little bit familiar with the with cemeteries in Hevakadisha, because I was on a Hevakadisha, I knew that usually have a map in those trucks. I figured why do I have to go through all the thorns and everything else going through it? I'll take a look at the map. Most probably it'll be marked out. So I start heading up the roadway towards that truck. And the Sidebnata was behind me. And then, as I get close to the truck, it looks to me like somebody's sitting in the truck. Lo and behold, on Sunday, the gates are closed. Everything is closed. So I go over closer. And I go over to ask him if he has any idea from this cemetery is Rebjakim Yosef. As soon as I get close, he says, where you've been? I've been waiting for you. Jump into the back of the truck. So I motion with my hand to the to come faster. So he comes running up the thing over there. We jump into the back of the truck. 
didn't tell this fella nothing. And he rides down the hill, stops someplace, he says, go over here to the left. It's all the way on them, that's what you're looking for. So he says, and by the way, I left the gate unlocked. You put your hand and you go out from the gate, just uh, close the gate, and you'll take the lock down, close it down. I put it over there, but it's not locked, this thing over there. I say, and how are you going to get out? He says, oh, I'm going out from the back door. There's another entrance in the back, and I'll go out from there. Have a nice day. Goodbye and goodbye. Bikitsa, Yabnata gave me a name to be misfollowed for. I didn't know none of the details, etc., but I don't ask no questions. He gives me the name over there. I'm misfollowed over there. Everything's fine and boiled. Okay. From there, we went to uh, to uh, some other cemeteries over there, some other quorum, uh, where Abyakov was, uh, where Blue um, uh, Grzovsky was, and a number of other ones. And um, then he gets a call that the one that he went to be misfollowed for, basically, he was Matzliach. Whatever it was, I don't know what it was. I didn't pick up on what was on the telephone, etc., etc., but he said, well, Matzliach. It happened to be that I was looking for somebody's uh, caver, basically, already for for a few years. Uh, uh, what happened was that a number of years before, uh, uh, I decided that I'm going to the cave of Rabbi Yonis and Benazil. So I took the names from four older Bachram in Yeshiva, and I told them, give me your names, and I'm going to go be misfollowed. I come to the, it wasn't as easy those years, it was many years ago, they have Enigos now, some of them, uh, to get to the cave of Rabbi Yonis and Benazil. And... Uh, I'm taking out my uh, paper with the names envelope, and I find only three papers there. I don't find the fourth one. Looking through my pockets, I empty out everything. All my pockets, my wallet, everything. I can't find the fourth one. Okay, what should I do? You know, I'm away so far from Yerushalayim. If I don't have anything, and I know I brought it along with me. Okay, I was inspired for these, the three that I had the name. And then I go back to Yerushalayim. I look through my, my suitcase, my business. I go through my pockets again, and lo and behold, it's in the envelope with the rest of them. But I was not going to make the trip back a second time to the thing. What happened was, Lamaisa, is that this, the three Bacharim all got engaged that year, and they all got married. And this other Bachar that I couldn't find his name, uh, two years later, he had a asthma attack, and he was Niftanach. I felt for some reason, for other things also, I wanted to ask him if he's but I never wanted to ask the family where he's buried or what it is, this and that. As we went to these other, this other cemetery, I noticed his cave there, and I was able to go and be misfollowed over there. It's, everything was worked out to Siyazish Maya very well. And a few weeks later, we went back to the cemetery, the first cemetery where Yaakov Yosef was, and we asked the people over there, Where's this one, the driver from this red truck? They said, what driver? Where? This is the people that we have over here. So I said, on this and this date, which was basically two weeks before, there was somebody really. They said, no, it was on a Sunday. Nobody was here. The place wasn't open. There's nothing. I said, and yet, Lord, he said he's going out the back door. They said, there is no back door. So I really don't know what this is all about, but there was no back door, he says, and there was nobody there on Sunday to open up open up anything or to be there the red truck stays here from friday afternoon or whatever else it is until uh, sunday etc until monday etc
I used to go two to three times a week to bring food to a middle-aged younger man that uh, had a stroke a few years before, and he was in a wheelchair. I went to the apartment to visit him. I also spent much time talking to him and making his life a little bit more tolerable. The man, evidently, unbeknown to me, contracted the coronavirus and was Mr. I was not feeling well already at that time at home, so I was unaware of it. That same week, where he was Nifter and I was not aware of it, it was the week before Pesach, I got ill with all of the corona symptoms. Hatzala called the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, which is called Hup, that they want to bring in a corona patient. Hup said, use a Jersey facility, not ours, which is in Philadelphia. So Hatzala was heading to Camden Hospital. When one of the members received a call from a Philly chaplain, Oskin, and he said, I'll get him into help. He contacted one of the head doctors, and he called back Hatzola, and he says, I made arrangements. The doctor says that um, he'll make sure to give, to give him a bed to get him uh, into this hospital. I was out cold the entire time from when they picked me up, basically. I was um, incoherent. When they arrived at Hop. And they told me that it was a big to-do as the hospital over there and the doctor refused to take me in, even though the other doctor called in, etc., etc., etc. They were giving them a very hard time. So one of the paramedics of Atola says, suddenly they see I sit up in the stretcher. They were kindly shocked when they saw that, that I sat up in the stretcher. And I pointed to the doctor in charge and says, Doc, listen to me. I'll be your best patient, and you'll never regret it. Take me in, let's get over with it. And I laid back down onto the stretcher, and I was back out cold. The doctor told them, if that's what he says, let's go for it. And I was admitted to help. What Seattle Deshmayet was, that a few years back, uh, I refused to sue Hup Hospital when they misdiagnosed me for GBS. They never would have taken me in now as a patient. But Seattle Shmaya, which we'll get into another time about that. I was put into an ICU COVID isolation unit. I gave authorization. If they have to, they could intubate and put me on a ventilator where no other choice is available. Nurses came in every four to five hours, unless I called for some urgent matter. Meals were given regularly. Blood was drawn twice a day. I was there during the entire Pesach. Few days I was unconscious. Much of the food was not kosher or basic. I had mostly fruits and OU power of high protein drink. Also some kosher or basic sealed meals. No visitors were allowed. No bigger food was allowed. Shmura hand matzah and grape juice was available. And the matzah was from Eshtral under Rabbi, uh, I forgot. I was there for 17 days and I lost 22 pounds. It was very hard being in isolation. With no visitors allowed, uh, as Chazal say, the plague of Choshech was the hardest one for the Mitzrayim, as they were neither able to move or see anyone. As far as I was able to determine, this Huff Hospital was the only hospital in the world where every firm person with COVID walked out on their own two feet. Must be that the Malach fall with the Malach assigned to Huff. After being released from the hospital, I went to Freehold OU Kosher Rehab Center for two weeks. After that, I went to West Palm Beach for a week to get back to myself. I did have a persistent cough from which I went to the hospital through rehab, Florida. 
I was sucking mm. on cough candies. After I came home, it eased off somewhat. I was concerned how would I deal with the cough over Tim Gedalia and Yom Kippur. I got up on Tim Gedalia at 4.30 in the morning to eat something. The cough stopped at about 5 o'clock in the morning, and it receded, didn't irritate my throat, till the middle of my rib after the thoughts. Baruch Hashem, I made it through on Tim Gedalia. On every Yom Kippur, I was very concerned. I was sucking the candy during Tzilazaka, and at 6.30, uh, in middle of Tzilazaka, Shki was 6.45, my throat stopped bothering me. I removed the candy, and I was able to go the entire Yom Kippur with no throat discomfort or coughing until 5 minutes to 8 when my roof started. While in the hospital, there was one nurse that would always ask me certain questions about Judaism. I wasn't sure if she really wants to know more knowledge, or she's trying to, to shepherd with the, with the Jewish religion or something like that, whatever it was. I wasn't sure. So I asked her, I said, yeah, I would like to have a banana. She says, yeah, I was wondering why you always ask for a banana every day. I said, if you get me a banana, I'll give you two reasons why. So within the isolation, they put up a sign by the by glass window that they need a banana. They bring a banana. I ask her, what part of the banana, this I learned from the Victor Miller, my, uh, when I learned from him, uh, what part of a fruit gets ripe first, the part closer to the tree or the part further from the tree? So the nurse says, well, probably the part closer to the tree, that's where all the nutrients are. So I said, if it's a part closer to the tree, first of all, the fruit would fall off prematurely. Second of all, take a look at the banana. It's a little bit partial green by the handle, by the part that's attached to the tree. And it looks completely ripe, or maybe a little overripe, on the other side. She says, oh, I never realized that. So I say, it doesn't it make sense to peel the banana from the other side, not from where the handle is? So, because when you peel it by the handle side, you squish the banana because it's, it's still not completely ripe. She says, I never realized that. I said, do you ever watch a monkey peel a banana? She says, I saw them peel a banana, but I never paid attention to it. I say monkeys peel the banana from the other side, not where the handle is, and they hold it by the handle. They don't take the banana into their dirty hands. They eat up the whole banana, and then they throw it away. She says, oh, how interesting. I never paid attention to that. I say, and others say that we came from monkeys, and we don't even remember how to peel a banana. I can tell you one thing. I don't come from monkeys because I know how to peel a banana. Never heard from that nurse again about anything about Judaism, etc., etc. A few years ago, I suddenly feel my knees giving out and I'm falling down. <coughs> it happened a few times in the course of the day. I always grabbed something close to steady myself. And after it happened a few times, I went to my doctor. It was on a Sunday morning. He checked me out and said he wants blood work done immediately with results today, and it's the only place to do it is in a hospital. At that time, I had to go to my child to Chop Hospital in Philadelphia. So I decided I'll go with my wife. She'll take my child to Chop Hospital in Philly, and I'll go to the University of Penn Hospital, which is located in the same approximate location. I told the doctor to call into the emergency room and instruct them what type of tests to run on me. I arrived at Hupp. Hupp is a, a, a hospital university of Pennsylvania. With the use of a walker as I was losing my bowel. They checked me in immediately 
did a slew of tests and decided it was a muscle side effect of one of my medications. I told the doctor in charge there are three items, issues, that are real neurological related and not muscle. And, you know, I was a member of Atola, so I did, I was familiar a little bit with these things. Can we address those issues, the neurological issues? He said it's all muscle related, not neurological. It'll improve over the next few days if you stop taking that medicine and he discharged me. Protocol is at the minimum. They should have admitted me overnight for observation as I really couldn't even stand on my feet. I kept on losing my balance. The situation deteriorated and I was falling down more frequently. But I figured, you know, let me wait a few days and see if it really improves. I went back to my doctor on Thursday morning. He said I should see a neurologist and recommended a Dr. Gilson in uh, Long Branch. We called for an appointment. Dr. Gilson's office said the first appointment was for a week later. I really couldn't wait as it was getting worse by the day. I inquired in which hospital and it was Dr. Gilson doing his rounds that day. He, you know, he was also, he had students, etc., etc. So he does rounds with his students. And they told me he's a Monmouth Medical Center today from 12 o'clock on. So I had a fellow pick me up and they took me down to Monmouth Medical Center. And I told him my doctor is Dr. Gilson. I said his office may not find my record because of their filing system, my name spelling, but Dr. Gilson will recognize me. A half hour later, Dr. Gilson arrives with two of his students to my bed in the emergency room. And he says, with a frown on his face, where am I supposed to know you from? I respond to the doctor, first we diagnose, then we'll make the introductions. He smiled and realized what was going on. You know, I had to get in. He suspected then and confirmed the following day that it's GBS, which is Julian Barr Syndrome. What that does is it disables the muscles, it starts from the extremities, either from the feet or the hands, and eventually shutting down also the breathing muscles. It's very often misdiagnosed, and Hupp really misdiagnosed this thing, and really, they uh, really should have had me checked in and treated me for that, but it's very often that it's misdiagnosed. After, like, Baruch Hashem, I got better, they, they treated me for it. I was there a few, um, whatever it was, a week's time. And then they sent me to a rehab, etc. And Baruch Hashem, I pulled out of it. And then very successfully, Baruch Hashem. I got calls from lawyers that they wanted to sue Hop for the misdiagnosis. And I decided, no, I am not going to sue the hospital. My reasoning was very simple. The local oilum over here uses that hospital pretty often. It's a very good hospital. I really had no permanent damage. I got pretty much cured from the GBS, thanks to Hashem. And just to sue them and to make money and this and that was not gay. It wasn't, it wasn't a right thing to do. And I decided, so you make a couple of dollars in it, but that's not the idea. The idea is you have to do what's right. And over here, and if I would have basically sued Hup when I did have the, the corona, they never would have taken me in. They would have had a directed that this person sued the hospital. As I left the shul on Matzah Shabbos, I lived in a small shul, not in a yeshiva shimminion, and uh, I put on my coat. As I'm going home, it just doesn't feel like the pockets where I normally have how I fit in. It something doesn't feel right. I come home, I take a look at the coat. I said, no, it's a little bit long on me. Something doesn't look right with the coat. I decided something is wrong, 
So I wanted to go back to the shul. I must have taken somebody else's coat, even though I had a specific place where I put it, the first one on the rack. So I call up the president of the shul. Uh, we have to get a key to be able to go into the shul. He says, why do you want to go into the shul? So I told him, it looks like I got the wrong coat. He says, Oive, you must probably change your coats with the Chaim Chrysler. He was there and he called me up also that somebody took his coat. So I said, okay. Good. So he explained to me how to be able to open up the shul and I'll have Rabbi Chaim Chrysler with his son, Nabdoiv, meet me in the shul. Okay, I go back over there and I take a look. You know, my coat is not there, but the device is that Chaim took the coat. And he brings back the coat. And I put on my coat, and he puts on his coat, and he asks me in, in, in uh, Yiddish, Yingerman, man mantle. Young fella, could you tell me why you took my coat? <clears throat> I was stunned, you know, you make a mistake, you make a mistake. He hung it up in the same place where I hung up mine. So I told him, in Jewish, the Lashen in, in, uh, in Gemara Lashen, Hazal basically, is it still Rabon? It's so called the, the coat that the, the Rav puts on. Is it a certain, a certain beggar that the Rabon wears? I said, I want to know what the it's still the Rabon is, so I went and took the coat. So he turns to his son, Rabdoiv, uh, he says, You've got to be careful of him. There's another time I was in Exhol and uh, in Bnei Brak. It must have been about 12 o'clock at night. I'm riding down one of the main streets of Akiva or something like it. And I see the Chaim cars were staying and talk by a bus stop and talking to somebody. I pull up and I said, Rav Chaimsworth, the let the bus is in the bottom. We can't be kidding, can't be kidding, can't be kidding, can't be So I say, the Rav's alive, come by me and car. I'll take you wherever you want to go. This is good. The kids, I'm taking him, he told me where to go to. And he says, for the toiver that I did him, that I basically took him and I'm taking him all over here, that if I, when I come to Antwerp and I call him up, he'll have one of my balabatim take me a tour of all over in Antwerp to show me all the place in Antwerp where it is. So I said, yeah, but, uh, but you know, the role was never there, so it'll never happen, such a kind of thing. Uh, the Rav is always traveling, so he says, how do you know I'm always traveling? I say, because last week I saw you in Lakewood. He says, oh, so you saw me in Lakewood, so you travel as much as me. Let's go back in Lakewood this weekend at Snow, so we'll meet again over there. Have a nice day. I was home then, and his, uh, one of his Gabon, the Avram Edelman, <coughs> calls up and says, the Mashgiach is supposed to say Shmuz soon, in a few minutes, and his Shmuz is locked in his in his desk, and he can't open up the desk door. But you may come over and open it. Uh, I basically um, um, to, uh, learned locksmithing many, many years before. Hold on, I think I'm not coming So because within, uh, within uh, 20 seconds, a half a minute, I had his door open. And I gave him his, his papers. So he tells me I should tell him the side, how I opened up the door. So I told him, He I know, I know you don't come to usually uh, to my shmooz, and you daven Meyer in the dormitory building, I know that, but how'd you open up the drawer? So I told him, So I was able to open the drawer. 
One day, the Pshneya Kotla, the Shiva of Lakewood, and the Meshgiach Ebnosim, they used to go every day to eat in a side room, the dining room. They ate a breakfast over there. And they used to discuss a lot of things from the yeshiva. And uh, basically, uh, they had a pretty long uh, breakfast. And the Pshnei and Ebnosim called me over. I was working them for the yeshiva, Shikol. And they said, the Pshnei told me, that when he goes into the passes by the dining room, he looks into the window of the dining room. He sees the oil that's sitting over there, and it seems to be the same oil is sitting there when he leaves. Whatever it is, a half hour later, which is surprising. Why are they sitting so long to eat breakfast? They should go into seder. So I turned to the mashgiach. I said, "For such a thing, you don't need me. The mashgiach should say a shmuz and tell the oil you know, you eat the meal and go right there." So the Mashgiach turns to me and says, you think you're the only one that doesn't come to my shmooze? These other ones, these sitting in the dining room are also the same ones that don't come to my shmooze. So the Mashgiach says, come up with an answer. Okay, I told him, you got to give me some time. About two weeks later, the Mashgiach meets me and he says, you know, I looked in the dining room and the oil and packet doesn't sit. Uh, I didn't hear that any signs went up. I didn't hear anybody complaining. This, no, did you do anything? I said, wait another week or so, see what happens. And he sees me a week later, and he says, no, it seems like everything is fine and boiled out. Oil and taco doesn't sit. But uh, there's no tumult that was made from anybody, and usually either signs went up or this, that. Tell me what you did. Yezichah did something. I said, I'll tell you what I did. I came here 4 o'clock in the morning, took all the goyim. I had the yeshiva carpenter made up uh, benches. Where, and basically, I took at 4 o'clock in the morning all the chairs, locked it up in the dormitory in the basement. And we placed everything with benches without backs. How long could people sit and eat breakfast if you don't have a back to lean on? It's basically, uh, the milk, the other moves along. I rather went recently to check the yeshiva. This was many, many years ago. And they have in the dining room. There is no chairs. Everything is benches. I went one day, I went to, to the Nosen, And I told them that there was something that I was involved with. And if somebody doesn't hear the whole mice, uh, basically he's going to start getting upset. And I'm afraid that if the Pshnei is going to hear part of the mice and he's going to get very upset on me. We have to preempt it. Let me tell you the story. And I told him the whole story. So he says, come with me to the Pshnei. So I go with him from his office to the Pshnei's office. And uh, he tells me, knock on the door. I knock on the door. As soon as the Pshnei I hear moving his chair, uh, the Mashgir Chirvnosan turns around and walks back into his office and lets me stay there myself. I was devastated. Now the Pshnei is going to come in. I'm going to have to tell him the story, what I came for. This, that there's nobody here to help me. I'm devastated. But what should I do? He set me up in a, in a matzah. I have no choice. So when I went into the Pshnei, I decided I'm not going to close the room, the, the door, because if I have to leave, I'm going to have to leave in the middle of the day. The kids, it didn't take long. I started telling the Pshnei the story. And he started talking... So... Uh, the door was open also. He comes running in. He says, What's that? The Mishnah says, He says, Let's first sit down and let's hear the whole thing from beginning to end from the Bureau. And then we'll see what's with Aftana Bechtaf Hedda Gansazar. Once I said the whole thing, so the Mishnah smiled. He said, As soon as I heard the beginning, I heard it. So he must have said, and he walked out, and that was it. It was a very nice, interesting way that I thought it was a setup, but it was a brilliant, brilliant plan from the boss. 
there was a um, uh, minion in the Chabur room downstairs that they used to say Yom Kippur Kata. Very small. It was just, just about a minion. If nothing was one of them that used to come, and I also came there to for Yom Kippur Kata. And uh, the Shail is by by year, which comes out to be a Nisim, you say Yom Kippur Kata or not. So if nothing came down, I was there. And some said you do say, some say you don't say. Basically, it would have been a problem if the other ones would have left the ones that it said you don't say we wouldn't have had a minion, etc., etc. So the Nosson looks around and couldn't decide what to do. He says, "Vos rebudel zok b'zoyet menton." So I look at Bekitza. I said, "Yes, we're going to say Yom Kippur cotton." Bekitza, we said Yom Kippur cotton. If that man go over to to the Mashgiach and Nosson, I said, "Vos hotes with me at What's up here? Tell them that if I whatever I say, very simple. You b'derek klal don't always daven by the regular minion in yeshiva." But Yom Kippur Cotton, you're always here. So I was sure that if you came here for Yom Kippur Cotton, you came because you wanted to say Yom Kippur Cotton now, even though it's it's Chodesh uh, Nissen. So I knew that you were going to say yes. That's why I said that whatever you say, that's what we're going to do. I was once discussing um, something by the Mashgiach, by the Nelson in the house, uh, discussing a certain parish with him sitting by the table, and the younger man comes barging in. Uh, he's got to talk to Mashgiach right now. So I hear the Mashgiach. He says, yes, step on the side a few minutes. Uh, he doesn't know what it is, but this person wants to talk to an emergency. Okay. Good. Reb Nossam was there. And I stayed in the... I went into the kitchen. And this one, he's saying, this is that. I mean, and Mashgiach, a lot of times, is, you were not able to understand a lot of times what he was saying. Because Vincent, the young man, starts raising his voice a little bit. So the 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 Nossens Rebetzin says, "If I state this, what the Mashgiach zoktaich?" He says, "Nay, if I state this, zogi imer zogi, if I state this." What what the Shiloh was, what I found out was the Shiloh was like this: He wanted to invest with somebody some money, where that money basically would uh, he held it to bring him a parnasa, help him get interest with with the with the had the risk with all different kind of things, and the guy's going to give him protections, all different things. And Nelson's Rebetzin says, The Mashgiach Zoktaich, he will blive in a nar mit a star. You'll have a star that he owes you and this and that and him, but Lamais, you're going to have nothing from it. You're going to lose your money, but there's blive in a nar mit a star, but you're not going to have your money with all these kind of things. He's familiar with these things very much. For a few weeks in the summer, Nelson used to go up to the Catskills for Shabbos. Uh, whatever it is, five, six weeks, seven weeks. And uh, so there was a few Bakram that also used to go. So they decided, instead of trying to rent a car, whatever else it is, they're going to buy a car. They bought a big old Packard. Packard was a very um, comfortable, large car. They paid for $50. Each one paid $10. If Nelson paid $10, each one should come in the car. And they went up and took them up to the Catskills. They divided the gears and the tolls, everybody. And we got to Then, one week, which was already in Elul, they decided they want to go up for that Shabbos. And Ibn Nossin says, Nein, it's a Shein Elul. They said, but it's not Labor Day. And we have the our place where we're staying at. We have to Labor Day. We're not going to go. Ibn Nossin says, once it's Elul, Yichkeinish, Mayer. That's it. Yeah, yeah, but you're a shooter. He says, you could use the car, but he says, Yichkeinish. The kids, um, the car worked till they got up there. And then the car broke down, and they couldn't come back with that car, whatever else it is, and that's the end of the life of the car.